Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Support for small town secrets comes from Manscaped. Who is the best in men's below-the-belt grooming? Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Let me ask the guys out there something. Have you ever tried to groom your Sasquatch, only to have it go horribly, horribly wrong? Well, Manscaped has you covered. That's why Manscaped redesigned the electric trimmer. Their lawnmower 2.0 has proprietary skin-safe technology. So this trimmer won't nick or snag your nuts. Manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past. And don't use the same trimmer on your face that you're using on your balls. That's just nasty. Manscaped also has the Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. You already put deodorant on your armpits. Why not put deodorant on the smelliest part of your body? Get 20% off and free shipping with the code BIGHEADS, one word, at manscaped.com. Always use the right tools for the job, and your balls will thank you. Remember, get 20% off and free shipping with the code BIGHEADS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off for free shipping at manscaped.com with the code BIGHEADS. You're listening to a Big Heads Media Podcast. Tonight, we finish up Season 3 with Point Pleasant Part 3 as we discuss the high strangeness that John Keel and Mary Heyer were going through in 1966 and 67. All that and more on Small Town Secrets.
every town has a secret. What is yours? Hello, everyone, and welcome to this, the final episode of Season 2. It is Episode 2.10, and it's the end of the season. It's the end of the three-part Point Pleasant series, and, well, it's the end of the year, almost, quite frankly. And uh, I didn't time it this way. I didn't plan it this way. I wasn't intending to take, like, a Christmas break or a holiday break. It just sort of shook out that way. Which means it probably won't shake out this way next year. But here we are, and we are finishing up, like I said, Season 2 with Point Pleasant. This is the final episode of all of that. And uh, had some gremlins to deal with all week. Um, I have this little hub, you know, I'm sure a lot of people out there have them, uh, that I use to plug in, like, the monitor and all the all the gizmos and gadgets that I have to use to do the show so that I don't have to plug, like, 80 things into my MacBook. And, uh, apparently it has decided that the two USB ports that are on it, uh, all they're going to do from now on is charge stuff. So, it took me a little while to suss that out. Couldn't figure out what was going on. Mics weren't working. Interfaces weren't working. All this great stuff. So, I just ended up plugging my audio interface, uh independently of the hub and everything is working fine which is annoying but at least if I have to replace a part it's like a $20 hub and not a $300 mic or a $100 uh, audio interface so that's that's on the upside but everything is here everything is working it's been a great Friday so far I got a new guitar eight string so that'll be fun to mess around with and create some crazy music for a uh, season three it was pretty nice day at work pretty much a big christmas party didn't do a whole lot and uh i have a very special your small town secret segment this week much like last week we are discussing the small town of hellier kind of uh but we're talking to tyler strand and greg newkirk of hellier fame and uh that's a good one nice long conversation some good questions many laughs to be had so You'll want to hear that. But before we get to that, of course, we're going to take a listen to another Big Heads Media show. Uh, I'll be back after that, and we'll get on with uh, what John Keel and Mary Heyer were uh, going through. Some of the high strangeness that they were experiencing during all of this Point Pleasant madness. So stick around, and after the uh, Forest Ramble promo, I will be right back. Hello, I'm Rich Ferraro. I host the Forest Ramble, the intelligent Nottingham Forest podcast. Every month, I'm joined by Stephen Topless. Hello. And the Maradon the Midlands. Hello. To review and discuss what's been happening at the city ground. We provide match reports, sharing our thoughts on what we have seen. And our contributors, Baz. Hello. And Jeremy. Hello. Chip in with analysis and nostalgia. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, search for Forest Ramble on social media, or visit www.forestramble.com. And I'm back, and I would like to point out that uh, I have a special guest here with me tonight. Normally when I do this, he uh, messes with me for a little bit, uh, and then runs away and falls asleep somewhere else, but tonight apparently he has decided that 
inside here with me in the other chair is a great place for him to sleep tonight. It is my cat, Charlie. So if you hear like a weird groan or a grunt, uh, he likes to make funny noises. That is the cat. That isn't me. But he's being pretty good, so I'm just going to let him, as long as he's not being an annoying turd like he normally is, I'm just going to let him kind of hang out and be here. So if you hear a strange noise, the podcast isn't haunted. It's just the cat. But I wanted to finish up this season with uh, something that might be a little bit different. We're just going to talk about all the weird things that some people were going through during all of this, uh, mainly John Keel and Mary Heyer, but a couple of other people also have some small experiences. Uh, it grew, like I said, this grew so far away from Point Pleasant as it went on. And John and Mary were no exception. I mean, they both experienced uh, running into very strange beings, strange people. They had issues with the phone lines, an issue with the mail, and just all sorts of weird things trying to get in their way from getting this story out from Men in Black to, you know, mail going missing. And that's what we're really going to get into tonight. That'll be kind of the first part of the show. The second main part will be getting into what the Mothman might have been, what I think the Mothman might have been. You know, we're going to wrap it up and we're going to have a little little talk about just everything that happened and, you know, my thoughts and feelings on it a little bit. And then, of course, we are going to dive into some local headlines. And then we'll talk to uh, Greg and Tyler from Hellier and Hellier Season 2. And we'll come back. We'll finish out the show. We'll finish out the season. And I'll take my little break and then we'll come back and we'll do Season 3. Uh, I'll have some some stuff planned for Season 3. Uh, I'm really going to, I think, hit music really hard and try to make up some new tracks, some new, some new kind of music beds, some new interludes, you know, uh, use guitar more. I haven't had a chance to do that as much as I would like. One, because I'd, I haven't been really happy with uh, the tones that I can get out of the box with Logic Pro. It does okay, but it doesn't do kind of what I wanted to do, and I don't want to spend some money on, like, decent plugins. Uh, but I have found a way to kind of cheat with the equipment that I have. And I just I just kind of got in the Logic Pro and made a nice, simple, clean amp plug-in that you can make in Logic. And uh, I've just been using my multi-effects foot switch to kind of handle everything else. So it keeps it nice and consistent. I can get the tones and the sounds I kind of want to get and finally be able to use... Uh, more guitar in some of these songs so that'll be that'll be fun what else for season three i will be uh, working on the patreon it probably won't be ready like as season three comes in but maybe halfway through the season that'll be ready to go and i'll give way more details on that probably on the first episode of season three got some great topics coming up like oh we're going to talk about like a mongoose uh demon mongoose some kind of, you know, mon- it's, it's a good story. It's a weird it's a weird one, but it's fun. And uh, I think if all goes as planned, episode one of season three will finally be about Bigfoot. This is the 20th episode of the show. I've done 20 episodes of the show. And I've never, I mean, I've talked about Bigfoot in some news stories and stuff. But I've never done, like, main segments on Bigfoot. And I can't believe that. So I'm going to rectify that with episode one of season three. Uh, as far as I know, 
until I it probably won't change because I I feel I need to do some Bigfoot justice. But all that is season three. Right now we're still in season two, and let's finish up Point Pleasant, and let's talk about uh, some high strangeness, some weird stuff. When you start to look into the Mothman case, you very quickly start to understand that it's not about a strange cryptid prowling around a West Virginia town at night. It's more like a phenomenon that engrossed a whole year of high strangeness. No one probably understood this better than John Keel and Mary Heyer. Keel was born on March 25, 1930 in Hornell, New York. He was raised primarily by his grandparents after his parents separated. He was a writer who worked on TV scripts, pulp articles, and was a freelance contributor to many newspapers and magazines. He served in the U.S. Army during the Korean War. In 1957, he would publish his first book entitled Jabu, which dealt with his time spent in India and Egypt. He would go on to publish many books on the paranormal, uh, 14 books, which I'll explain later, throughout his life. Mary, on the other hand, was born in Clippers Mill, Ohio in 1915. She worked for the Athens Messenger out of Athens, Ohio, but lived in Point Pleasant and worked out of a satellite office downtown. She had a column called Where the Waters Mingle, in which she would often write about strange and odd happenings. It was because of this that she started to get many of the Mothman and UFO reports, and I've mentioned that before, uh, around the area when all this started. It was also the reason that Keel and Mary began working together. John and Mary would experience some odd things over that year, such as MIBs and other strange people. They would get strange phone calls and often have their phones go on the fritz, Keel in particular, as well as other unexplained events. Also, they wouldn't be the only ones. There were many odd phone calls going around at the time. Keel would stop and visit witnesses, totally unannounced, and within minutes, the witnesses' phones would ring, with no one on the other end, nothing but loud beeps and boops. It got so bad that he started to conduct spot checks, just to see if the person's phone would go nuts. So like he would just go to a witness's house or something, kind of drop in unannounced, and just see, like, hey, I'm just doing this, to see if their phone is going to go crazy, and oftentimes... It would. One night, Marion Keel stopped at an out-of-the-way farmhouse north of Gallipolis. This visit was completely unannounced and off the cuff. The house that they were visiting wasn't even that of a witness. It was just like random, I believe. Keel got out of the car, and while Mary stayed behind, he went and knocked on the door. Knocking on the door, Keel was met with a shotgun to his face. Keel tried to explain who he was, but he was told by the farmer holding the gun that he knew who he was and he didn't want anything to do with him. The next day, they returned and Mary went to talk to the farmer and smoothed things over. The farmer would go on to tell Keel that 10 minutes before he knocked on their door the night before, he had gotten a call from a neighbor warning of a dangerous man matching Keel's description. After John left that night, the farmer called his neighbor back only to find out that he had been out working in the fields all day and had not called him. That wasn't all. After the farmer explained himself to John and Mary, he led them out to a pasture behind his barn to show them a 30-foot circle of burnt grass and earth. Whatever had caused it scared his cattle so badly that they broke through an electric fence. 
Soon, Akil's phone troubles would ramp up. His phone would ring off the hook for days. When he answered, he was greeted by more beeps and boops. Sometimes, there were distraught voices giving him false information on cases he was working. Soon after, he started getting calls from various people who would just start spouting long Bible verses and quotes. There were times when on the phone with fellow researchers, the phone would go haywire and fill with static when he tried to mention certain subjects. But as soon as he changed the subject, the static would go away and his phone would be fine. His mail was also affected. Keel's personal mail would arrive late, or sometimes not at all. And I think that was both getting mail and sending mail. And Mary Heyer had her own similar problems with the phones and the mail as well. But they couldn't compare to how bad Keel's phone mishaps would get. Sick and tired of prank calls and interferences, he called his telephone company to ask if it was possible that his phone had been tapped. They checked into it and found that there was a drop in voltage, which usually meant that someone else had indeed tapped into the phone line. On July 3rd, which would have been like the next day after he called, I think, he found his phone shut off. Inspecting the basement of his apartment building, he found the room which held all the phone lines open and a man walked out. Keel told him his phone was off. All the man did was shrug and told him to call the phone company. He also noticed his phone bill start to skyrocket. It would rise up to $150 to $200 and just kept going. And I know in this day and age, like, $150 to $200, there's probably some of you that are like, oh, I'd, I'd, I'd slit someone's throat for a phone bill like that. But this is, you know, this is, and we're talking like local calls and stuff. So this is back in the late 60s and local calls and, you know, no cell phone plan, just normal landline stuff. $150, $200 is a lot, and it would get worse. They would just His price would just keep increasing. His bill would just keep increasing. It took John a few months to figure it all out. His phone was being tapped in a way. A friend of his tried to call one day, but dialed the wrong number. Instead of dialing a 4 and an 8, which were the last digits of his number, she dialed 4 and 0, but Keel still answered. Another number had been spliced into his own. This was the reason for the huge phone bills and much of the other madness. Because his phone bills got so high over the months, uh, his phone was shut off because he couldn't pay the bills. His solution? He simply told people to just dial the 4-0 number. So it was like, it was almost like he had a second line back in the day when second lines weren't all that common. And uh, so this other line was, you know, probably make it was making all these other calls, but because it was somehow spliced into his, it was just ramping up the phone bill and it probably where the voices were coming. So once he discovered that if you dial this other number, you still got his apartment, he was like, well, screw it. We'll just use this imposter number for right now and I'll, I'll still get my phone calls and I won't have to worry about paying the bill. Keel also started getting reports of imposters. A blonde woman with a southern accent was driving around Point Pleasant talking to witnesses Keel had already interviewed. She would introduce herself as Keel's assistant. She came equipped with a clipboard and a form filled with over-personal questions and very detailed questions about their sightings. Keel didn't have an assistant. In the spring of 67, 
Keel was walking down 42nd Street in New York City with a friend. Suddenly, a thin got man ran around the corner, intentionally snapped their picture, and then bolted up the street. Keel seemed unfazed by this, but his friend was quite surprised by the frightening looking man. Days later, John was called by filmmaker Dan Dresden. Dan was with Keel a few times in West Virginia and was working on a documentary, one which would eventually get canned by PBS. And was with John and Mary that night they saw the UFO that seemed to morph into a plane. He told Keel that a strange looking man had also snapped a picture of him in Manhattan. Mary had a strange visit in her office in January of 1967. She was burning the midnight oil in her office when a short, odd man entered. It was 20 degrees outside and he wore just a blue short sleeved shirt and blue pants. Very thin material, she also said. The small man wore very thick glasses and wore shoes that gave him a couple of inches to his height. He told some complicated story about his car breaking down in Detroit, and he had hitchhiked all the way to Point Pleasant and needed directions to Welch, West Virginia. Being a little frightened, she left her desk and got the newspaper circulation manager. Along with the circulation manager, Mary talked to the little man for a while. He seemed to know a lot about West Virginia. A phone call interrupted their conversation. As Mary took the call, the man picked up a ballpoint pen and seemed fascinated by it. Mary told him he could have it. He then scrambled out of the office with the pen and a high screeching cackle. Sometime later, he, Mary would see the little man again, this time on the street. When the man noticed Mary had spotted him, he ran off, jumped into a black car driven by a much larger man, and they sped off over the Silver Bridge into Ohio. On September 30th of 1967, Mary Heyer called Keel to tell him that she had almost been ran over by a black Cadillac. She was walking down Main Street when the car, driven by a very large man, started following her. As she got into her car, the caddy disappeared around a corner and she attempted to find it. Mary saw the car again on Route 62. It was heading straight for her. Three men were now in the car. The one in the back seat was wearing large wraparound glasses. She pulled off the road just as it sped past her. In the late summer of 1967, John Keel got a call one morning by fellow researcher Gray Barker. Barker had called Keel to tell him of a UFO case similar to the Derenstein case. This struck Keel as odd, since he knew Barker would not make such a mix-up. This man sounded like Gray Barker, but Keel knew he was not. He also knew other people in New York were getting odd calls from a Mrs. Gray Barker. Barker wasn't married, so John asked Gray, quotation marks, if his wife had made any calls. The other Gray Barker on the line said no. An hour later, he got another call. This time, it was the voice of a younger man said that Gray Baker was trying to reach him urgently. The young man on the other end gave him a number to call back. Oddly, the number was only one digit off from Keel's own. The next day, John called Gray Barker. Gray denied ever calling him the night before. Mary Heyer also once received a call from a fake John Keel, and this was one of many. She wasn't the only one that was visited by uh, 
an imposter John Keel. A few days after the fake John Keel called her, the real John Keel called her, and she told him that he sounded drunk or sick the other night on the phone. And of course, Keel had not called, so it wasn't him. Keel also had an interesting MIB experience. One night, three men dressed in black appeared almost out of nowhere in his apartment in New York. After they made their threats and demands, as MIBs are wont to do, they gave Keel a demonstration of their abilities. One grabbed a bottle of bleach from his cabinet, and all three then started taking turns drinking from it until it was gone. They were uh, unharmed by this action. So, that is just, I mean, phone calls and just weird people, imposters and men in black, and, you know... If you read the Mothman Prophecies, there's a couple of other accounts in there. Also, there is a great book by Brent Rains, which is where they, that last MIB experience came from, that has a couple of new stories, because Keel claimed that he couldn't fit it all in a book. He's like, if I, if I wrote everything down that happened, it would have been five or six books. So that story, and later I'm going to talk about uh, a friend of John, that he saw later who turned out to be somewhat, maybe something else entirely. Those are kind of new stories that are in Brent's book. It's an excellent book. Just It's full of just stories about Keel and people that knew him and, and all sorts of just great experiences from Keel and his friends and just great, all that stuff. It's uh, called John A. Keel, The Man, The Myths, and The Ongoing Mysteries. I will link to that in the show notes, and you can check that out and grab a copy if you like. But phone calls and mail and just weird people and imposters weren't weren't all that was going on. There was some other weirdness happening as well. Starting in 1967, John Keel would start a growing list of contactees. A list that would grow to be around 200 people. Many of these contactees would act as intermediaries for Keel, delivering messages to otherworldly beings and getting messages back. Not all these contactees were genuine though. Keel started to notice that at times he would get letters that seemed to conveniently line up with his thinking at the time. It seemed too good to be true, so he started putting out ridiculous ideas and theories. And of course, he would get verification on these outlandish ideas from some of his uh, contactees and the people they were talking to. So he kind of came to the conclusion that these were just more interference, more men in black, maybe, or more whatever was messing with him, whoever was messing with him from the phone and the mail, that this was just another part of it. He always felt that there was just something monitoring and messing with his every move during this time. By July of 67, he was in communication with a few of these entities around the country. Sometimes he would talk to these entities via phone, usually with the contactee as a go-between. He would also send letters to non-existing addresses and then receive replies. Some of these contactees tried to pass on future events to Keel. One of these events was that the power plant near Point Pleasant along the Ohio River was going to explode. This, of course, never came to pass. He also was told that the Pope at the time would die, and the Pope did. It happened how they said, and it happened where they said, but the time was different. It happened uh, a couple years later, I believe. 
Another prediction he was given was that a massive power outage would run rampant across the country as soon as President Johnson flipped the switch to turn off the White House Christmas tree. And of course, Mary also had some strange events happen to her. On one of his last visits to Point Pleasant in November of 1967, Mary told Mary, sorry, told Keel that she had a strange dream of Christmas presents floating in the Ohio River. Keel also felt a weird foreboding in Point Pleasant during that time. At 5:45 on December 15, 1967, Keel watched the president flip the switch. Moments later, an urgent broadcast interrupted. Here it is, Keel thought, powers going down all across the country. It wasn't that. The country's power grid was fine. The news broadcast would go on to announce the collapse of the Silver Bridge. John Keel wasn't alone that night. An old and close friend named Joe Woodvine had stopped over. Keel hadn't seen Woodvine in a long time, and he dropped by unannounced, and they spent most of the day together. I guess he stayed there till around midnight or so. Three years later, he ran into Joe's wife at a store she was working at. He asked how Joe was. She told him that Joe had died of a heart attack in 1965. Keel could not believe what he was hearing. He was sure that it was Joe he had spent that day with. Him and others had, had seen the guy. They had interacted with the guy. He was flesh and blood for the most part. And he was so convinced that whatever whoever this person was, was Joe, that he got into an argument with Joe's wife. Mary Heyer would be in her office on the night that the bridge went down. And like several other witnesses, she too heard a loud, almost sonic boom right before the bridge collapsed. And if you remember, like all the way back in episode one, I talked about how there were a lot of people in... Uh, Eyes of the Mothman documentary that said there was this loud sonic like boom, there was this loud boom right before it happened, and that's to this day has kind of been an unexplained thing. Other people around Point Pleasant would also experience similar events, you know, the strange phone calls and the beeps and the boops and the weird noises. Uh, and some of the main witnesses would also have encounters with uh, some strange people. Steve and Mary Mallet had a vi- had some visitors. They were visited by a man and woman they didn't know, insisting they be allowed to take pictures of the couple. Because of this, Mary wrote down the license number of the Volkswagen the visitors were driving. However, the plate and many others that were on strange vehicles around town could not be traced. The Scarberries were also visited by a rather strange man dressed in a black suit with a dark complexion who offered to take pictures of the whole family. And that's a little weird anyway, because Linda declined. She was pregnant at the time, but she wasn't what they would call a family yet. They were kind of pre-family. Linda Scarberry declined the odd offer, and the next day, she woke up with swollen red eyes. And I wanted to mention those two encounters, uh, because those are the main witnesses from that kind of first real encounter, if you remember back in episode one. And also, I, I find it interesting that Indrid Cold had a dark complexion and uh, he wore glasses. Some people say he wore these wraparound glasses. If you remember a little while ago when Mary was almost ran off the highway, there was someone with dark glasses. And also, I I don't know if I touched on this in the last episode, but uh, Indrid Cold and 
his some of his crew they often drove a black Volkswagen. So I wonder, like, I'm not pod, but he was like a friendly guy, and everybody that was associated with him was friendly and helpful and peaceful. So it's almost like if men in black are some otherworldly thing and aren't just weirdos from the government, it's almost like Indrid Cold and his crew were the same thing, but kind of the opposite. They, you know, the same species, the same entities, but were kind of like the good guys and the men in black had these, had this more sinister edge to them, but almost like both, both injured cold and the men in black feel like they came from the same place. They're very similar in look and mannerism, but just obviously their, their demeanor, one is much more friendly and one is much more not friendly. I always, I don't know, I always found that to be a pretty interesting thing to look into. But it was just, that's it, that's everything. High strangeness abound. But let's, uh, let's, uh, take a little break. I'm gonna play a little promo here for Hellier. And, uh, then we'll come back and we'll talk about some theories, some ideas on what the Mothman might have been, where it is now, and just, I don't know, I'm just gonna kinda maybe rap about it as the as the hip kids say for a little bit uh so stay tuned uh we'll be right back planet weird's cinematic documentary series hellier returns with 10 highly anticipated new episodes poised to change the way paranormal television is experienced Following a search for strange creatures in Hellier, Kentucky, a team of paranormal investigators are contacted by a mysterious figure with new information about extraterrestrial contact in rural Kentucky. After following up on loose threads from season one, the team prepares to head deep into the underground caverns of the Mammoth Cave System on a quest to learn the truth about a supernatural virus spreading through the Appalachian Mountains. What begins as a fresh lead soon descends into an Appalachian conspiracy involving murder, occult rituals, and an ancient intelligence, forcing the team to question the true nature of the phenomena. All episodes of Hellier premiere exclusively on Amazon Prime on Friday, November 29th at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time and free of charge on YouTube two weeks later on Friday, December 13th. Check out hellier.tv for episode descriptions, downloads, detailed series information, behind-the-scenes looks, and special features. Follow at WeirdHQ and hashtag Hellier for more exclusive content and updates. Hellier was just a symptom. returned after that nice little hellier uh, promo there'll be some more hellier goodness uh, coming up near the end of the show but i wanted to just kind of take this segment do it a little bit differently and just kind of wrap some stuff up and you know say tell you what happened to keel tell you what happened to mary and uh, my final thoughts on on this topic and just some uh, theories and ideas on what the mothman is was will be all that great stuff. John Keel would go on to write many Fortean books, but in the end, he never found any of the answers he was looking for. 
Other than he was pretty sure that whatever was behind the phenomenon that he was researching wasn't very friendly. Keel would succumb to congestive heart failure on July 3rd of 2009 in New York City. He was 79. Mary Heyer tragically would pass away of an illness which she fought for a month. She died on February 15th, 1970. She was only 54, and for over 27 years she worked for the Athens Messenger. But the question still remains, what was the Mothman? If you ask people around Point Pleasant, they may tell you that he was a demon, come to bring despair in the form of the Silver Bridge Collapse. Others may tell you just the opposite, that he was an angel, a messenger, that tried to warn people about the collapse. Was it simply some sort of alien or alien creature that had escaped and was running loose on Earth? If so, could Indrin Cold and his crew had been the ones that were sent to capture it? Many Native American tribes have legends of giant birds of prey known as thunderbirds, and the tribes around the Ohio Valley were no different. Is it possible that Mothman was one of these giant thunderbirds? And like I said in the, the first episode, not a lot of Native Americans settled in the West Virginia kind of Ohio Valley area, so maybe they knew what it was filled with, what lurked in those woods, and uh, just kept away from it. Some may say that what people were seeing out in the TNT area was, not, was nothing more than a sandhill crane or a large barn owl. A further explanation is that Mothman might have been a mutated sandhill crane. And I like this one. If you watch uh, the Eyes of the Mothman doc, there is a fellow who uh, talks about fishing in the, uh, the ponds, the polluted ponds around the TNT area and catching a bass that was mutated. It, it, was, it was fine until it got to the tail, and the tail just kind of tapered to a point. Um, so if maybe if this pollution was able to do that to a fish, who knows what it could have done to uh, a bird of some sort. It's a little bit of a kind of a 1950s sci-fi explanation, but it's kind of a fun one. That makes me think sometimes about it. But whatever it was, whatever you think it was, something happened in the skies and forest around Point Pleasant. Something that still resonates today. And like I said during the first episode about after the Silver Bridge collapse, people just kind of quit talking about Mothman. Mothman went away. The UFOs went away. The MIBs went away. John Keel went away. And was that because the Silver Bridge collapse was the pinnacle of all of this? Or was it just simply because the Silver Bridge collapse was something that desperately needed dealt with more than people seeing strange things in the skies and in the woods? Uh, there's a book that is kind of the new hotness right now called The Lake Michigan Mothman High Strangeness in the Midwest by a Tobias Wayland. I haven't had a chance to read it. Uh, I think over the break I'm going to try to nab it and uh, read it. But I do know a little bit about it. I've heard some talk about it and it kind of uh, posits the idea that the Mothman never went away. He just kind of migrated 
kind of north, kind of northwest a little bit over the decades, and it's still around. So that looks like a great book. Everyone's raving about it. I, like I said, I have not had a chance, but I think I'm going to grab it here and just over the next few weeks uh, give it a read. Uh, so I'll, you know what, I'll link that in the show notes too, so people can go and check that out. But like I said, the Mothman case is one that's near and dear to my heart. I think it's an important case. I think everyone that is interested in uh, Fortean ideas, this idea that all this stuff is somehow connected or related in some way, you know, the Bigfoots and the aliens and the ghosts, that it's all, there's something behind it all, uh, should have the Mothman prophecies on their shelf or in their Kindle library or on their shelf and their Kindle library. I, I have it on paperback. I also have it on audiobook. Uh, it's an important book. Grab it if you don't have it. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that I did not talk about in that book that didn't really pertain to the Point Pleasant area. Just, you know, little little odd uh, encounters that he's had to look into around all over the place. Interesting stuff. Pretty easy to read. Jumps around a lot, but, you know one of the better kind of 14 paranormal books and a great one to have all the books I'm talking about are great and Point Pleasant is just you know I like it because it's a place like I said that I can go and uh, we're going to talk about this a little bit in the interview coming up that uh, there are places and that was one that just give off an electricity they give off a tingle they give off a feeling uh, when you know about these stories, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this show is that, you know, maybe someone will listen to one of these episodes and want to go and visit one of these towns. And when you go to these places and you know the story, you know what happened there, there is a different feeling in the air when you're there. And I get that feeling when I go to Point Pleasant all the time. And. That's to me. That's a big thing. You know, I love getting down there and just being where it was. And you know, there's just something about walking down the street. Like, you know, you can walk by Mary Hire's old office, which I noticed is vacant. Uh, I would love my. I, I had this great fantasy that wouldn't it be awesome to be able to do this show full time and just you know move down there and buy that office or rent that office out and breathe new life into it and make it you know the STS headquarters podcast studio uh, one can dream though I suppose one can dream but that's the story and it's one of my favorite stories and I just you know this year just shook out in such a way where it was like I have to do this for the end of the season uh, the new stories came out you know going to the Mothman Festival this year a lot of that just made me go oh this is this is the story that you need to be telling to finish up season two and I think all of this came out really well this has been a journey and I've learned a lot more about the case doing this than I even realized was out there you know it started out as oh we'll read the Mothman prophecies and then it was like oh now we gotta read Brent Rain's book and now we gotta you know oh now I gotta read uh, the Derenberger book and then I gotta read his uh, daughter Tanya. And I kept saying Tawana last episode. I apologize. She spelled it funny, but I believe it is pronounced Tanya, not Tawana. Her book. So it ended up being like, oh, now I've got four books I've got to read for this series. So I thank everyone 
for joining me on it. And I think that's going to finish up the discussion for right now on on um, the Mothman. I'm not sure what it was. I kind of like the idea. I kind of threw it out there that maybe it was some kind of escaped thing that injured cold or somebody was trying to get down here and catch. Maybe a bunch of it. Maybe there was a bounty out for it. And we just had entities from all over the place uh, coming to Point Pleasant trying to... Uh, nab the reward and capture the the Mothman creature and bring it back to its home planet or its home dimension or wherever it came from. I kind of like that. That's kind of mine. I, that's my story. I'm sticking to it on this, I think. But uh, we're going to take a little musical interlude and just like last episode, I'm going to play a track from the Hellier score by Anthony Sistone. Uh, I'm going to link to his Bandcamp page in the show notes so that if you like what you hear or you've been looking for the music from Hellier that's where you can go and get it it's 8 bucks, it's 47 minutes of awesome music and I'm going to play probably my favorite track it's the second track on the score uh, called Tiller's Pass it's just a great haunting acoustic guitar track that just everything about it is exactly what it should be so listen to that and I'll come back with some local headlines.
All right, let's hit up the news, the local headlines. First one I uh, got from Coast to Coast AM, written by Tim Banal, and the headline reads, Video, Puzzling Lights, Filmed Over Mesa. A couple in Arizona were left scratching their heads this past weekend when they spotted a mysterious series of lights in the night sky. The intriguing sighting, which would wind up garnering attention from a local newscast, occurred on Sunday evening in the city of Mesa. Witnesses DJ Mayer and Carrie Burnett say that the strange incident began when they noticed an inordinary bright light that suddenly began moving diagonally across the sky. I was trying to figure out which way it was heading, Burnett recalled, and that's when we noticed it started dropping things from it. Fortunately, the couple were able to film the odd event as it unfolded, and in their footage, a series of smaller lights can indeed be seen falling from the object in a manner somewhat reminiscent of flares. As is to be expected to this day and age, the couple promptly posted their video to Facebook, but found that no one could explain what they had seen. Aviation experts who examined the footage for TV station KNXV suggested that the UFO was some kind of terrestrial aircraft that was likely dropping parachute flares. Be that as it may, Mayer wasn't convinced of that explanation, noting that there were no navigation lights, even the military has to have navigation lights on, that's an FAA rule. As such, he offered a slightly more out of this world explanation for what the couple had caught on camera. I know what I saw, he mused, and I don't think it was from here. With that in mind, what's your take on what Mayer and Burnett witnessed? And uh, the video is right on there, I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah, you don't see any lights. You just kind of see uh, a big, you know, bleh, orb, a ball dropping smaller orbs. Could be flares. Could be something else. Could be like exhaust waste or something dropping out of something weird. But I thought it was a good video. Nice short article about it. This next one is from Sky News over from the UK. It's written by uh, Sanita Patel Carstairs. The uh, headline reads, Mystery as hundreds of birds found dead in a road in Anglesey. Let me scroll down here a little bit to get the actual article. Hundreds of birds have been found dead in a road in Anglesey. The starlings were spotted spotted on Tuesday by Hannah Stevens near Linluwayan, north of the village of Bodderdern. She was on her way to see a doctor when she initially spotted a huge flock of birds in the sky. About an hour later, on her way back, she saw them lying dead in the road. She called her partner, Dayfed Edwards, to tell them to tell him what had happened. He told Sky News that he first saw the birds as they took off to the fields. She thought, oh, that was a large number of birds, and then on her way back, she found all of them dead in the road. She phoned me, and she said she couldn't believe what she had seen. To be honest, I didn't believe what she had told me, really. Mr. Edwards decided to go over and see for himself what had happened. It was very distressing, he said. My gut instinct is that they had been poisoned, but we don't know. It's hard to say, really. I think there are hundreds of them. The couple have contacted the police and the Animal and Plant Health Agency, who they say are looking into the incident. RSBP Wales told Sky News, We are concerned with what we have seen. Starlings are a redless species, after all. We are keen to enlist the incident is investigated by the authorities, but for the time being, it is important not to speculate on the cause. And this last one's a little bit of a cheat. I'm not sure if Columbus, Ohio is a small enough town to be a small town secret article, 
but I liked it was it was an interesting story, so uh, I'll allow it. And this one, next one, is from the Columbus Dispatch. It's by Jim Woods. Neighbors give an okay to return home after no nuclear reactor or hazards found at Northwest Sides home. A 911 call Thursday led to a precautionary evacuation of an entire street in a Northwest Side neighborhood over concerns about a possible small nuclear reactor and alpha waves reported by a resident who said he sustained burns in his garage on the device. In the end, authorities found no hazard. The man will undergo a mental health examination and may face charges of inducing a panic. The man, who is in his late 20s or early 30s and who resides on the 6300 block of Chippenhook Court, called 911 about 6.15 p.m. and reported he had been sustained burns from a device he was working on in his garage. Battalion Chief Steve Martin of the Columbus Fire Division's media spokesman said the man's description of the device suggested he was working on a small nuclear reactor and included references to a particle accelerator and alpha waves. The latter reference led to concerns about potential radiation, he said. Hazmat, Bomb Squad, and other merger responders operating out of an abundance of caution evacuated the approximately 40 residents on the cul-de-sac street in the Cranston Commons development while they assessed the situation. Martin said the residential development is located off Route 33, Riverside Drive, on the west side and Sawmill Road on the east. Cranston Drive was closed between Route 33 and Dummerston Court, the next cul-de-sac street, next cul-de-sac street east in the subdivision. The man told bomb squad, arson fire investigators, and medics on scene that he sustained radio frequency burns while working on a quantum physics generator in his garage, Martin said. We have no reason to believe that he was trying to make anything that would do anyone any harm, Martin said. He said medics determined the man did not appear to be injured, at least not seriously. Radiation level checks were conducted on the man and then the residents and nothing was found, Martin said. A nuclear specialist brought to the scene found in the garage what was identified as a homemade capacitor, Martin said. A capacitor is a device which consists of two or more separate conducting plates and is used to store an electrical charge, not unlike a battery. After it was determined there was no threat, residents were allowed to return to their homes at 9.20 p.m. The male resident was taken for a mental health evaluation, Martin said. Depending on the evaluation and further investigation, it is possible the man will be criminally charged with inducing a panic, Martin said. Only one injury was reported. A firefighter in a hazmat suit was injured when he unexpectedly came off the curb and twisted his ankle, Martin said. He was being treated at the scene by fire medics. And that has been this episode's local headline. Going to play the boom when we're going to come back and we are going to do your small town secrets. And so just like last week, we had uh, Connor Randall and Carl Pfeiffer on to talk about Hellier and their spirits at the Stanley Project. We're going to finish out the season with some more Hellier talk with uh, Greg Newkirk and Tyler Strand. Did this interview earlier, uh, or Friday evening, so it was actually not that long ago, but it was a fun interview. It's probably about not quite 50 minutes long, 45 minutes long, something like that. I did record all of it this time. Very proud of myself for that. But I'm I'm just going to let it play, and we're just going to take it away. And it was a great interview. Like I said, it was fun. It was funny. 
um, some great answers to some great questions. And so everyone take a listen, enjoy it. And if you don't know what Hellier is, please check it out. I will link to it all in the show notes. You can watch both seasons on Amazon. You can watch both seasons now on YouTube. It is just, it's a fantastic documentary about something that happens in a small town and just spirals out from there. And I can't even really put it in a bite-sized soundbite. It's, but it's, it's important. It's good. It's well done. And I will warn you that this is a pretty spoilerific interview. Like I said, it's been out for a month now. It's been on Amazon for a little bit, and now it's on YouTube. So I know a lot of people have seen it, but maybe not everyone has seen it. So if you haven't, maybe pause, watch it, come back, and then listen to the interview. If not, keep going, and I'll be back when it's over. No, thank you so much for coming on. Like like I said, the Carl and Connor, like I love how you guys will give everyone kind of nice you'll try to make time for everybody like you know you'll be on boa audio or mysterious universe one week but we'll make the time to come on this little show and do the same thing you know and that's i really appreciate that oh my god we appreciate you uh caring enough to ask us to be here it's big deal for us too yeah it's 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 an honor it's an honor to be here cool cool um but yeah the one i wanted to start off by saying i remember 2012 right uh-huh. i was listening to mysterious universe and you and, and greg and dana were on uh plugging still searching the bigfoot documentary <laughs> oh no and i think <laughs> i think greg i think you stayed behind to do the plus extension or something and you talked about this you had just gotten the pictures i think i don't yeah. remember which pictures i don't know if it was just the footprints or like all the pictures yeah. But like I remember that in 2012, so I've been waiting for it. And as soon as you announced this, I was like, I know exactly what that is. I remember <laughs> that from seven years ago. It it captured my imagination in a way a lot of stories I don't think have. And you know, obviously, what it's become is that's weird. Um, <laughs> is uh not what it not what it started out to be, right? No. So if no one knows or has has been under the paranormal rock for what the last two weeks, three weeks. Hellier season two has come out. It's now on. It's now on the YouTubes and can be watched by anyone for for free. For free. For what was that Friday, right? Yeah, yeah since week. Friday. Yeah. Yep. Um, and it's been it's been amazing. You guys have really knocked it out of the park. Like I, you know, I've already kind of done some of this with with a uh, Carl and Connor, but like like I told them, I think that it is opening up a conversation in in the paranormal that has gained traction in the last couple of years but still Mm -hmm. hasn't you know still you know and i just as i think it's really helping opening up a new way of looking at things you know and that's you know that's been my favorite part about the entire thing i think really i uh i hope it is um It's it's I and I think it is. I mean, I, I, I think we all can see it. I mean, all you have to do is follow the hashtag on Twitter and you can see the way that the show is affecting the way people think about the phenomena. And they're ordering books and reading books they'd never read before and thinking mm-hmm. about things in ways they never would have before. And that's really, you know, if we accomplish nothing else, the fact that we're getting people to read John Keel and, and Jock right. Kelly and, and Young and that type of thing, that's a success in and of itself, I think. And I, I also think it's a strange as well how, you know, a lot of these themes 
have been out there for quite some time, but it seems like for some reason, whether that be because of normal television programs or what have you, it's just been pushed, you know, into the back. And it just seems like a lot of people have forgotten these things. So it's kind of just like a re-revealing of, of the things that always seem to have been there, which I, I think is interesting. Right. Yeah, I know. I agree. Like, yeah, no, I'm just, it is, it's hard to watch like other paranormal shows now, you know, um, there's a couple <laughs> good ones, you know, the small town, small town monsters guys are pretty good, but it's hard to, hard to go back and get on Amazon and watch some of that stuff after this and be like, it was just, Ooh, just cringe at some of it. Very well done. And you're right. It's opening, you know, but I guess I'm going to start. I haven't, I guess I have started off, but this was my first actual question. Same one I, I asked uh, Connor and Carl, but I didn't record it because I forgot to hit the record button. Uh, <laughs> what, what's so? What sparked the entrance, the interest in in this this field of work for both of you? Oh like, God! Um, <laughs> I mean, I was a weird kid anyway. Uh, you know, I was, I was super into the X Files and things like that. And you know, growing up in the church, there are things that are. Uh, taboo and you're not supposed to look mm -hmm. into and of course as a young kid you know when people say don't look into this it's it's dangerous it's of the devil of course you're like oh my god i gotta figure out what this is all about and so i always had an interest in this stuff um you know my my introduction to this this field was very accidental it was just i think the way that a lot of people get into it they they go and they want to traipse through the abandoned house at the end of town or they've read a book about the occult or uh, watched too much Unsolved Mysteries, that type of thing. And mm -hmm. so my friends and I just got into it because naturally we were curious about it. And I think my curiosity for it outlasted a lot of theirs. <laughs> Maybe right. I never grew right. up is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> for, for, for me, it was very similar to Greg. I, uh, I always had an interest in these topics. I, you know, we could probably delve deeper into uh, as to why, but like, I, I don't really know if I have a clear answer as to why they spoke to me. Uh, it's always just been something that really deep at my core has always kind of tugged at me in the back of my mind. So it's, it's something that I think is really integrated into my reality and my, my viewpoints of the world. So it's, I've always kind of just walked alongside this type of phenomena, you know, kind of reading the strangest stuff I could come across. So uh, I was fortunate enough in my early teenage years to read things like John Keel and, and read stranger occult concepts like alchemical writings and things of that nature. So I feel like I was lucky in the sense that I started off having a, a really strong encompassing view of how strange a lot of this stuff was and how it's interconnected. And I, I just kind of kept following along that path as I, I got older until it kind of kicked into a higher gear, so to speak. Right. Yeah. That, I was actually thinking about that question today. Uh, we just had like a big Christmas party at work, so we didn't do Jack all day for the most part. So I had a lot of time <laughs> to just sit around and think about stuff. And I, I was, I was kind of like, Greg, I had the same answer Greg would have had, and Carl had a very similar answer. Oh, it was the X-Files, it was Unsolved Mysteries. But I got to thinking about, like, you know, you did see weird, you know, for me, like, I, I kind of thought that I was in that field, too. But the more I kind of think about it, I do start re to remember things of, like, you know, that one time I saw weird, strange lights in the sky when my grandma was taking me home, or 
you know, the time in the old apartment where I, and I talked about this on the show once, where I saw this dark kind of four-legged thing walk up the stairs that I assumed was the dog until I looked down <laughs> and saw the dog had not moved, you know. So I guess the more I think about it, there have been little things that have popped in my life that have made me want to, to dig into. I've always had an interest, but I've always wanted to dig into it further, and starting the show was one of the big reasons why. But, um, but you know, well, think, I, think I, I'm, that, I always like that, yeah. That's the that's the difference between people like us who decide that we want we want to look deeper into the these weird things because most people just brush them off you know mm-hmm. I mean uh it's, it's just like Tyler was saying these these types of concepts and ideas that we're covering in a show like Hellier they've been out there a long time but people brush them off and they don't pay attention to them or they see something strange in the sky or in the forest or in their home and they just go oh that was neat that was weird and they or or that was scary and they don't want to approach it anymore and then there's people like us who start podcasts or or uh, start websites or start a documentary series about that type of thing because right. we can't let it go maybe we're uh maybe we're broken <laughs> maybe maybe I'm more inclined to believe the latter, but, <laughs> but, but definitely. And, and, and I think the other great thing, you know, about this documentary, apart from revealing some of these older ideas and these interconnected ideas is the fact that at the base level is that we're showing how immersive you can be when you actually do boots on the ground research. Because I think a lot of people that have an interest or passing interest in these subjects, you know, they, they just pick up you know, a local book, you know, from a bookshop and they read about somebody else's take. They read about somebody else's experience or something that, that has long passed. And I think what's fascinating about Hellier is that not only are you seeing things revealed by actually going physically to these locations, but on top of that, there's so much of it that even though we're incorporating old ideas, old concepts, the case in itself is modern. And it's new and there's things happening right now. This isn't just a reiteration of a tale everyone's heard a hundred times. Like this stuff is happening now. So we take the viewer in a really immersive path along with us. And I think that's also fascinating. And it really hits that point that like you, you can't get the full picture unless you go all in and, and you see these places physically and you try to dig these things up. And I think that's something that's taken a back seat for a really long time because everyone's been okay for so long by just reading about somebody else's take, which research is great. I mean, obviously we do tons of research in the case. I almost think 80% of it is, is reading through books and reports, you know, but I think the other 20% of being boots on the ground also offers immeasurable insight into these things. And I think that's what we, we try to display in this documentary as well. Yeah, and that's really that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this show is because I want to give people this outlet to learn about these places and go, oh, I want to go there. Because when you go to a place like Point Pleasant or when you stop uh, the name of the highway, but where you guys where the injured the injured cold uh, experience happened, when you guys stop along the street and Dana's like oh, injured, he was right here, you know, like right. You get that tingle. You get that. There's places that have that tingle, that electricity in the air. And I, I, you know, I'm hoping that people listen to the show and go, oh, I should go check out Point Pleasant, or I should go check out Kecksburg. It's just up the street, or you know, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. 
So we talked a little bit about how Hellier is kind of opening this conversation that all of this might either be connected in some way or might be from the same place somehow or might all be the same thing. Has that always been your guys's outlook or is that something that has evolved over time looking into this this case i mean for me i came into uh, you know i was 12 years old when i first started ghost hunting you know mm-hmm. my friends and i had a, a website we started when we were 12 and it was all we were very interested in ghosts that was our thing because that was very accessible to us things like ufos and things like bigfoot and stuff like that seemed so far away and and so far removed from where we were and what we could track down. We thought we could find ghosts and and once in a while we did. So that's where that's where I first started to get interested in this stuff and I didn't start to notice crossover until a few years later when we started going out uh what eventually became still searching. Uh the Bigfoot hunter still searching. Uh, mm-hmm. And hanging out with Bigfoot hunters, people that we we were just hanging out with for fun because we found this crazy guy in the back of the Weekly World News. And once I started to realize that this guy had just as many strange uh, encounters around Bigfoot sightings as we did around ghosts, made me start to wonder, maybe there's a connection between all of this stuff. And eventually that type of thing led to reading things like Keel and leading things like Valley and uh, realizing that, you know, ghosts might not be our dead grandmothers and our uh, or, or demons or whatever, you know, the modern uh, paranormal uh, researchers would have us believe um, that that took a while. And uh, I think that's that's probably why I formed a lot of the opinions that I had is because I was able to come to them naturally. Like I didn't really mm-hmm. I didn't read them and I wasn't really given them. I, I came to them because of firsthand experiences, which I think is the best way to get there. So uh, it was a it was a natural progression. And I think the longer people are in these fields and the longer they do real research, particularly boots on the ground research, they either they come to a crossroads where they can either go wow, there's something bigger going on here. I need to expand my field of research. Or they will shut out all the other fields of research because they don't really want their paradigm to change. They want to believe that ghosts are grandma or demons or angels or whatever. And uh, that's a big choice for a lot of people. And I don't think a lot of people choose the the choice that that expands their horizons. (laughs) You know, it's funny, too. on my end of the spectrum, there's it, almost like a an opposite here where initially being really young on a ufological perspective and like a spirit phenomena perspective, I always seen or felt the connection, the integrated uh, connection there. But when it came to something like Bigfoot, like Greg had just uh, brought up, it was funny because there, there was such a long period of time, uh, quite a few years where I never bothered doing research in the Bigfoot. It wasn't that I didn't believe it could exist, but I was so convinced by hearing other professionals that just considered it a physical animal that it, it didn't, it didn't pander to my paranormal interests of very strange things. Like I was convinced that something like a Sasquatch was just possibly an undiscovered primate. So I, I never viewed it as something paranormal, but it was strange that the more I immersed myself in just reading on the multitude of paranormal subjects, how you would have those strange reports of 
Bigfoot researchers who were so diligent in that field, looking for a physical animal, how many of those guys actually have a UFO experience or they have a ghost-like experience where instead of seeing a Sasquatch, they end up seeing a ball of light that floats through the forest, but it sounds like it has these two heavy footsteps cracking the branches as they see it float on by. Uh, even even in Pennsylvania, where I'm close to living now, you mentioned Kecksburg. Um, yep. I actually live only 30 minutes away from Kecksburg. And even the stories and reports that come from that area concerning things like Sasquatch in relation to UFOs is immense. Uh, there's straight up sightings of things that look like uh, that sort of creature stepping out of ships, you know, that like straight up UFOs and discs, you know, and disappearing and vanishing like ghosts. So it wasn't until a little later on where I started, I started understanding like, well, shit, you know, like <laughs> these, these things that I initially believed to be animals also seem to be stranger. So it just became more encompassing. And, and I think the more, people diligently stick to the path of reading into these things, they naturally do come to those conclusions like Greg was, was saying. Right. Yeah. Inter yeah. That's interesting. Like that's, a, I always like asking that question to see how many people have started with nuts and bolts stuff and then have, you know, that, and then have changed over time or like you said, the other way around. Um, I, I kind of asked a different version of this question to Carl and Connor about the Estes method and how, you know, how how they felt how it has evolved since they've made it because they just made it to be you know they just wanted a way to kind of legitimize the spirit box a little bit but it seems that it has grown and become a much you know it's become a much more uh, important tool it's become a it's become something different I think than they originally intended how has stuff like the Estes method and the Frank's box and all the stuff that you've gotten a hold of now changed the way that you investigate these cases. Honestly, I, I mean, personally, it's made me less reliant on other tools because I think that, I mean, my personal opinion is I think that the final frontier of paranormal research is the mind. I think that uh, with all the research going on with parapsychology, uh, all the breakthroughs that they're making in, in research on psychic phenomena and telepathy, I really do believe that the answers that we seek are inward and not outward. And I think with uh, particularly the Estes method, and I know that, that you know, Connor won't agree with me on this, but I think it's a psychic experiment. I don't think that it has as much to do with listening so much as um, getting psychic, uh, you know, getting getting psychic words that are popped into your head because your conscious mind is busy. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I really do think that those types of things, whether it's the Frank's box or the Estes method or the God helmet or whatever, those are machines that are less about blinky lights and more about going inward. And that, I think, has made me less interested in things like K2 meters and stuff like that. I think that stuff's – I don't think that they're useless, but I think that all of this time that paranormal researchers have been using things like K2 meters, they're 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 – looking for the wrong thing because i think the idea that we've we've started to to map particularly in hellier 2 is the idea that there are uh well there's symptoms there are symptoms to paranormal phenomena and i think that the the idea that there's like a an electromagnetic charge in the air that's a some sort of a fluctuation from the regular electromagnetism 
people say, oh, well, that's a ghost. I don't necessarily think so anymore. I think that's just a conduit through which we are able to see ghosts or interact with ghosts, which is part of the reason we use the God helmet anyway. So I think that uh, I hate spirit boxes. I can't stand them. But using them with the Estes method kind of flips them on their head and turns them into more of a, a, a parapsychological experiment. And that, to me, I feel is far more useful than sitting in a room listening to a really aggressive sounding spirit box, which uh, those types of things, I think, if you believe in this type of thing, charge the, the environment with a lot of aggression and uh, tension. Uh, otherwise, what we're doing with the, the Estes method is where it's just technologically assisted mediumship, frankly. It's just channeling. And I think right. that's more interesting to me. Uh, I think the best tool that we have is our body. I don't think that things like K2 meters and stuff like that uh, are really doing much of anything. I think I'm more interested in in what our best tool uh, is providing us. And that's what the Estes method and, and the Frank's box and the God helmet and stuff like that is to me. And I, I'm inclined to be right along with Greg on that. And yeah, I me too. I don't want to speak for Connor or Carl either, but I, uh, if you if you delve into their research, they were diligent enough to try a lot of different um, variations of the Estes method. And something that always stuck out to me listening to them that I thought was fascinating on this um, parapsychological note is that they've had sessions where someone would have the double blind test going, or or they would at least be unaware of external influences with the headphones and the blindfold but people on the outside would have the feed running so that you could also hear what they're hearing mm -hmm. and there were instances where they would repeat things that were not coming through the actual physical box or the radio station noise so again is it like greg is saying is that the product of a more psychic lubricant where your mind is taking fragments or it's taking that static, but it's giving you a easier doorway for these messages to maybe be transmitted from someplace else, even if that someplace else is your subconscious. Um, so I think that's, it's a fascinating tool. Um, I like calling it a seance in your pocket. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so I'm going to – that kind of leads me to this one. You guys actually answered answer, uh, answer this question at the celebration Sunday, but I think it's a question a lot of people have, so I want to re-ask it here. And it's, a, you know, it's about the spirit box and the Frank's box and, you know, how they differ. Like, you know, what's the what's the differences, what's the advantage, disadvantage of one versus the other? Uh, I think the, the only biggest difference is the SB7 is much newer um, it was mass produced. It was created to do one thing in particular, and that is to scan through AM and FM radio stations at three different yeah. speeds. Um, the Frank's box, on the other hand, those were all custom built by a man by the name of Frank Sumption, who believed that he received the instructions to create these things via some sort of extraterrestrial intelligence. And so there was only about 150 of them in the world. And there's something very strange about them. Um, they're, they're, they operate in much the same way, but whereas the SB7 is very much, uh, it's it's very much like a scanning radio station. It feels like smooth water. The Frank's box feels very much like crashing waves. It's uh, it's got a much different effect to it, and. I don't really quite know how to describe the feeling when you switch one on, but it almost changes the energy in a room. 
there's just something very different and off about these things. And I don't know if that has to do with Frank. I don't know if that has to do with uh, the intelligences that that told Frank how to make these things. But there's something that's special about a Frank's box that I didn't even believe until I witnessed it for myself. I knew everybody always freaked out about Frank's boxes, and, and I just thought it was because of the rarity of them. But no, when you turn one of those things on, it's like your entire room uh, gets charged with some kind of a strange energy. Really, really bizarre, <laughs> to say the least. Right. Yeah, because I remember Sunday, Greg, you said something about like the first time you put you switched one on, it felt like something grabbed you, and after that you were like, I'm done with this. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't oh. really prepared. I wasn't really prepared for it. Uh, I realized very quickly how much different it was than a regular Estes Method session. I typically don't do the Estes Method sessions, um, mm. partially because I, I feel like there is something to the idea of it being a psychic experiment. And uh, I'm, you know, I always joke I'm, I'm psychic as a rock, so I don't really see much uh, worth in me doing it when I have Dana, who's far more open. Uh, right. But once, you know, I'll do it once in a while, but this didn't feel anything like those at all. It felt completely different, and it made me uh, crawl out of my skin, honestly. And it, it really, I really think the Frank's box keeps you on your toes as well. Um, with the description Greg gave of, like, the calm waters of the spirit box, as opposed to the crashing waves of the Frank's box, what's really interesting is that even, like, the tempo of the, like, static changes don't even seem to be even they change a lot so unlike the spirit box um when you're doing those estes method sessions i think it's really easy to become complacent and almost zone out or get sleepy because you get used to this really clean repetition beat after beat the frank's box has its chaos it, it doesn't have a uh, direct tempo to it. It's almost like there will be a rhythm for a brief moment of time, and then it just gets chaotic, like a storm is kicking up, and, and it, it, there's so much variance. It bounces in between, so you, you can never fully get comfortable in that space. It, it really keeps you on your toes, um, and, and I think that might be a big factor of its different effect, You know, whether that be on your mind subconsciously or whatever possible external forces there are. It, it really keeps you in the moment. And it, you really have to be sharp and, and stay on your feet, so to speak. Right. Because that's what I, that kind of, this next one is pretty much for Tyler. And it, it kind of feeds off of that. Um, when you do, and I'll let everyone know that this is going to be probably a pretty spoilerific conversation before we start. <laughs> but um, in, was it episode nine, eight? I can't remember off the top of my head, which when you do the Frank's Box yeah, that's right. Um, you speak with like an accent, a very <laughs> sing-songy accent. Like, is that just because that's how you're hearing it, and it, you're just it, mimicking it, or is it there? Is there something more to it? It's really strange. I, I feel like it's a, a half breed of, of a multitude of um, of factors. Um, in one half. It's really strange. Uh, I mean, Greg can attest to this. He was he was next to me. He kind of was the one to control um, and set up like the volume of the box. So it was really really loud. Um, whenever you do those experiments, on top of having 
these noise isolation headphones, uh, which cuts out all of your external noise. We also have the volume of those devices extremely high, so they can be really jarring, especially especially with the Frank's box, which is almost like a raging storm inside of your head. So I, one part of it, I feel, is not being able to hear the own inf- your own inflection of your voice. So you, it's hard, it was hard for me to even hear myself when I'm speaking as you're hearing all this static. But then another aspect of that is how it was coming through as well. Um, it, it's it's really funny. There's actually um, a deleted scene that I believe people will be able to see when uh, the DVD for season two comes out. But there was a session yeah. or uh, a line that was delivered in that session. Uh, if people see episode 10, you'll see that I pour a bunch of Mike and Ike's. <laughs> on this <Right>. on this <laughs> altar that we have and the reason for that is because the previous night uh when we were doing the frank's box session i said this really bizarre thing where i i exclaimed we want sugar <laughs> it was mm-hmm. a really mm-hmm. bizarre line but like even when i heard the playback it actually struck me as shocking because there was such a difference between me saying we and want like the the we is right we then want and it was like just like this upswing and it's like but that's how it came through you know it came through that way on these three separate waves so like i think part of it is just kind of trying to relay a message and not being able to focus on the inflection of your voice but also trying to incorporate elements of how you're hearing it at least that's like how I perceive what I'm projecting out. So I think it's a multitude of things or it's just something other <laughs> right. making it come out that way. But that's, that's the best answer I have. It, it's really strange even to me seeing that session um, after the fact, because you don't really know how it sounds, you know, in the moment or, or what the, no, yeah, yeah, have, even are. so yeah, it was really yeah. shocking. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, I wanted to ask Greg, you mentioned uh, in season two that, uh, your your views on kind of the Indrid Cold story have changed a little bit since looking into this, and I was just wondering, like, what, like, how so from from before Hellier and after Hellier? I mean, I didn't really give it a whole lot of credence before Hellier. I thought, um, you know, John John Keel even talks about how he thought that uh, Woody Derenberger was a pathological liar, and I just thought, you yeah. know, I think it's very easy for people on the outside to assume that most of these types of stories, particularly contactee stories, are too good to be true. And that was definitely the case for me. And once you start to delve into this stuff and you start to actually do the real research and you meet the people that claim they've met these these entities and had these encounters, I think it humanizes them in a way where you start to put yourself in their shoes and you go, how would I be? If I met a man who said he was from outer space Um, and that changes a lot of the way that you see these types of things, which is another reason why boots on the ground research is so important until you stand in these places where these events happened, until you talk to the people who've actually encountered these entities uh, and had these experiences, all you can have is your own lens. You can only sit there in your armchair with your books and your blogs and your websites and you can... Uh, go, well, I don't think that actually happened. Once you actually are there, 
in those positions, you can have a bit more context that you lack. And uh, for me, it made me consider the idea that maybe these things did happen. Maybe there was someone who said their name was Indrid Cold and that they were from the planet Lanulos and did introduce themselves to in, to uh, Woody Derenberger. Um, I don't think that's uh, out of the question anymore. And I did beforehand. All right. Um, let's see. Oh, I have just one one quick Amy question. Uh, I did also see that someone asked you about her today on Twitter, and I thought that it was really awesome because you replied that she is actually getting some assistance from someone that can probably help her a little more than a couple of ghost hunters. So I'm glad <laughs> that that's going yeah. well. But she talked about the caves and about oh I can't remember off the top of my head about having a boat or not having a boat to get right. to the entrance. So right. and I maybe you guys just didn't show it, but I didn't like. Is there an entrance to a cave somewhere along that is actually <laughs> accessible by boat? I mean, I don't think we we want to give too many details okay. about the entrance of the cave, but there are lots of caves there. Um, there's a lot of caves, and yeah, I mean, we get questions about that all the time about you know how, where's the cave entrance and things like that. We don't want to talk about that because gotcha. this is an ongoing case, and we're gonna have to go back to these caves. We're gonna have to find <laughs> different caves. This is true, yeah. So, uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah, you know, like like Greg is saying that that particular area, it's it's loaded with caverns it's actually one of the I, I believe it's one of the second largest cave dense areas next to locations such as where the mammoth cave exists so yeah it's it's very very saturated you know with that type of uh geography or geology i should say um yeah yeah hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I just had the drive um yeah <laughs> of so this, course <laughs> This whole thing kind of started with goblins and obviously has become something more. But now that you've been into this and all this stuff has happened, like, what do you think about the goblins? Do you think there ever really were <laughs> goblins or were they just bait to start you on this path that Hellier has become? I think that's a 50-50. <laughs> I, I, I think at this point we're all fairly certain that there was no one by the name of David Christie yeah, uh, sure. in that area. Um, I think we can all pretty well agree on that, whether or not that event actually happened. I mean, here's the thing. There's photographs and yeah. there are there are locals who are saying, yeah, that looks like it's here. That looks like coal slurry. There's cryptozoologists who are saying, well, yeah, those have dermal ridges. Uh, that's notoriously hard to hoax. So there's it, it just like this entire case. It feels like there's this blend of of. Uh, one, you know, there's 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 things that are objectively real, and then there's things that we have to make up our own minds about. So, I think there was an encounter. I don't think that it was necessarily anyone named David Christie who had that encounter. Yeah, someone's encountered someone's pictures, right? Someone encountered <laughs> something, and I think the the question is now is um, why us, and why Hellier. And uh, who had that encounter? Who had that encounter? And why us? I think those are the two big questions that are lingering over this. And I mean, we can make leaps about that. I think part of the reason it's us is because someone somewhere had an understanding of where we would be right now in 2019 
making this project and putting this information out into the world. You know, at that time period, I was I was mostly interested in things like, uh, you know, poltergeist phenomena and Bigfoot and things like that. And I got I mean, I, I ran Week and Weird, which we got tons and tons of insane emails all the time about all kinds of insane stuff. It took something extremely unique to get me interested enough to want to look into this and to make someone like Carl interested in this and to make someone like Tyler interested in this. And the chances that, <laughs> I mean, look at the response that it's getting now. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's an accident. I think that oh, there no, was no, no. someone or something that had an overarching view of where we were going to be at this exact moment to make this exact project to enact this exact kind of response, which is the... Uh, Fascinating and frightening part of the whole thing. All right. Um, but, but, but yeah, it, it, I, is, it is really strange, too, because, um, again, it, it's funny when you have a response from people where, you know, some people have the frustration, well, well, you didn't find goblins, you know, but it seems like whatever these things are, you know, like, like Greg is saying, I, I do think they were a necessary vehicle and i still believe that as yeah you know, if, you, so do I. if you really wanted to look at it from a creature standpoint i still believe those things are integrated like like i don't i don't believe that the goblins or, or whatever you want to call them like just entirely don't exist in some form um, i mean at the end of the day we're still receiving and finding reports that even predate uh, hellier as a documentary of people encountering these things so it just seems like in all sense of the word like terry wrist had stated in his emails that they are a symptom of something and i think that's fascinating so i i don't necessarily think that we have to discount um things like the goblins you know i, I still think the little men and all the reports and variations of them are some sort of factor in this overarching case it's just a matter of what their actual purpose or role is and where are they really coming from if they exist or have existed um i that's the strange part about it all it's strange that you can get a view where you start off being hooked with those kinds of tales and then realizing that those kinds of tales are secondary when it comes to the importance of the whole yeah, no, I think that's where I'm at too. Like, like I always kind of wonder about, like, say the Loveland frogs, right? Like, everyone mm-hmm. goes, "Oh, they were frogmen," but I'm like, I mean, come on, I mean, <laughs> the Kentucky <laughs> they, goblins. They sound a lot like a much, goblin, right? And now, especially season two comes out, and you get reports of of beans with wands. And if you remember, there was a couple. I think the second police report, he said that this thing had a wand in its hand or some sort of, you know, so yeah, like a I've always, I've always loved like, yeah, I think yeah. yeah. I think the Loveland frog is always, it's been my forte when I found out like, Oh, there's a thing in Ohio and it's not Bigfoot. That's amazing. You know? <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, that's but what that's, I was. That's been a theme from the get go is this idea that people have been experiencing the same phenomena for centuries, but because you know, a lot of the places that we're in when we are in Hellier, there's no cell phone signal. These people are fairly disconnected yeah. from the rest of the world. And a lot of these places, 
they have their own regional names for what we're finding out are probably the same type of thing, the same type of creatures. So whether it's somebody calling them holler goblins or somebody calling it a puckwudgie or whatever, uh, tommy knockers, when you start to look at it, you can form a pattern. You can look at a map and see these things. But because they've all given them regional names and they don't have a, a national context for these sightings, most of them aren't linked. But we're starting to see... A lot of these people are seeing the same exact things. They've just given them different names. So the Loveland Frog might just be another type of goblin sighting. And I think that's part of the importance of what we're doing with Helliers. We're trying to give a broader view of this phenomena as a whole and, and show people this stuff isn't necessarily isolated. But what is the connection that links all of these things together? And, and, you know, it's funny, something that didn't make it into the doc, uh, one of my personal favorite reports that was dug up during research is that even in the town where some of these new leads are occurring, there is actually a local woman uh, that we found through a public forum that actually talked about an encounter with seemingly the same type of entities, but she referred to them as vampires. Because she had no context. She, it began with uh, local cats turning up missing, seemingly being drained of blood. But wh- whether or not those were related, her and her husband are driving late one night. They drive past a cave where she describes they've seen a group of people dressed very oddly, and they moved faster than a normal person should. They didn't think anything of it. They returned to their home. And when they returned home, they found strange symbols smeared with what seemed to be ash on the doorway. Um, Her and her husband enter the house. The lights don't come on. He thinks somebody's cut the power and that there may be an intruder. He sweeps the house. And then they both seemingly see this small, pale person that she said had chiseled features, pointed features. And she said that her husband popped the shot off and they watched this thing get shot in the back of the head. And it didn't phase it. And that this creature ran out of the house and ran up into the tree line back into the forest. Uh, but her whole her whole concept of what it was, given its appearance, was that it was a vampire from folklore. You know, because when you see a creature, you're not going to be like us where you're biased and be like, oh, these are connected to UFOs or this or that. Like, this is just a local woman seeing a very strange thing. And in the context of just what's out there in the ether of just monsters and and folkloric uh you know creatures she just assumed it was a vampire so through her lens that's what it was uh so it's just really strange things like that you know like when greg mentions just the lens and the the names that people give it right right let's see um so in one episode in season two greg you mentioned that your most burning question was to find out who terry wrist is and now that season two is done, is that still your burning question? Or has, has your guys' burning question for this phenomena changed since since more has happened? I mean, I think Terry Rist is the, the instigator of all still of this. The, still the big honcho, right? So I, I think that I think finding out and, and I I have to acquiesce to the idea that maybe we will never know. Terry, you know, very well could be dead. You know, he would be in his 70s, his mid to late 70s at this point. So we may never know the real question or the, the real answer to that question. But uh, I think Terry is a, a, a linchpin to a lot of this. And so, uh, you know, talking to him, 
this guy who who also met Indrid Cold, this guy who claimed that he went into alien cave bases and and cleaned them out, who was into arcane magics and sent strange emails that included <laughs> hints at, at big rituals. Of course, that's probably the biggest question that we have. Um, but I think, you know, trying to be realistic about it, if this guy, if if Terry, whoever he is, never gets in touch with us, I think we've gotten to a point now, particularly at the end of season two, I think we know the direction we're supposed to be heading in mm-hmm. more than ever. So, yes, I want I want to know who Terry is. I want to talk to Terry, but uh, I'm not going to hold my breath and I'm not <laughs> going to be dissatisfied if we don't, because I think we've got the picture now. Right. Um, where was I at here? Oh, yeah. So this question is from our mutual friend, uh, Taylor. What? Yeah, oh, Taylor. Taylor. Okay. Taylor, the, uh, the, the Volkswagen <laughs> bus guy. You got to be careful how you start those, man. I know. That's why I did it. Um, oh, yeah. The other thing I was going to mention, I, I made this on Twitter uh, while as a joke, but now I'm not sure if I'm joking or not. I kind of, you know, I made this joke about like, oh, Terry Rist is obviously the moon hoax guy from the gas station. And <laughs> and now I'm not so sure, because if I were Terry Rist, and I'm not, that I know of, like, I would have found some way to just to to hide in plain sight right on your nose just for a little bit. You know, oh, it's like it's I like uh, Greenfield guy. said we would meet him and we wouldn't know we met him. He'd be in an, right. a, an out of date Sinclair gas station uniform. We met that guy at a gas station. You never know. I still think my my favorite quote is, shit, no. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That guy's great. Um, But yeah, Taylor, he had a question. He just wanted, what advice would you give for people who want to experience or interact more with this phenomenon? Phenomenon. Engage engage it. I mean, I think that's the simplest, the simplest answer to that. Try stuff. Yeah. Go, go ahead. I mean, like, that's the thing. A lot of what you see us do in Hellier is just us trying strange stuff for the first time, moving outside of our comfort zones. You know, there and there's a lot of different ways to do that. You can do that with experimentation. You can do that with reading a book that maybe you never would have read before. You can do what Tyler does and you can it, literally just boots on the ground, explore, find a weird place, go, go research it, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do that. But I think you know, the paranormal is subjective. You need to subject yourself right. to it if you want to experience it. So you have to engage it. Go and engage the strange. Uh, hang out with that weird guy that you, you know, he talks to angels on the city bus. See what he has to say. You never know what you're going to get from that. Find the guy in the back of the Weekly World News who has a, a Bigfoot office in your in the next town over. <laughs> And go with him because that might – I mean it did for me. It changed the way that I viewed the phenomena, and it was all because I took a chance. And so I think that's the simplest bit of, of advice I can give is to engage the strange. Go out and do it. Uh, push yourself outside of your comfort zone, and uh, you'll learn a lot more about the world. Yeah, I, I I completely agree with Greg. And like when it comes to even exploring or doing the boots on the ground stuff, I I've said this before. Um, even though it may seem like I'm very physically orientated, I I think I can speak for most of the group is the fact that we we do see the overlay of how it's a very 
it seemed seemingly spirit-like phenomena, uh, very immaterial at times. However, I feel like when it comes to those boots on the ground um, investigations or just immersing yourself inside of these places, it's not so much that I think these experiences are occurring outside of you. I do think a huge aspect is inside of your mind. However, I see the importance of being in a physical space to get you in the right headspace for that to occur internally. And when we talk about this case possibly being, you know, an initiatory experience, something I try not to overlook and something I'm very thankful for is how this phenomenon has acted as a travel guide. I've seen a lot of beautiful places and I've met a lot of amazing people and I would have never been in contact with any of these things if it wasn't the pursuit of the phenomena. So try not to lose sight of those things. Even if it's just walking down the aisle of a store in a strange town you've never been, every one of those footsteps is a footstep that shouldn't exist if it wasn't for something else that seemingly also should not exist in this reality, but seems to. And I think that is vitally important to the progression of who we are as people and what all of this is leading up to and entailing. So I think the more that you immerse yourself and even just the environments, you know, you don't need to have a bunch of equipment or looking at blinking lights, but even if it's just something internal that you're just taking for yourself to take a moment to take in some scenery or just the conversation you had with someone that you met, I think that is how you engage it. You know, you are always engaging it, even if you don't realize it. And I think that's, that's what's important in this pursuit. Yeah, no, yeah, great answers. Agreed. Uh, I've got one more question for each of you. These are the hard-hitting ones. All the other stuff, bumpkiss. <laughs> These are going to be the... Okay. These are going to be... Yeah. Ready for this? Sit down. hope you're sitting down. Greg, <laughs> yes. I need to know what funny nicknames you have for the cats. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, there's so many. So, I know there uh, probably are. Gordy is... Uh, we call him the Juice. We call him uh, Gordo. Uh, Pete, we call PP. Sometimes I call him straight up penis. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's there's so many. There, uh, uh, Gordy is a uh, doo doo, ding dong. Um, Pete is uh, um, peg leg Pete. Uh, uh, pirate Pete. Yeah, there's there's tons, and it really just I mean they change. You you know when you have pets, they they, they the nicknames just change. Oh yeah, all the time. As yeah. the seasons change. Yeah, uh, so there's tons. Right. My cat's name is Charlie, so of course it's Chuck. It's Chuckles oh, the yeah. Clown. It's Chuckasaurus Rex. He is most affectionately known as Stinky Rat, though. Oh, I, I don't know. It. I don't know why he's not stinky. I just like calling him that. But all all cats are also Bubba. I call all cats Bubba. <laughs> yes, so, so that's do I. Too. I don't know why it just happens. <laughs> and all... right, and for Tyler, right. Um, so you, for people who that don't know, you're you sculpted the goblin that we see in all the posters and at the start of the show and in all the branding and stuff. Does he have a name? Is he like Greg the Goblin oh, or Gary the Goblin? Oh, you know what's funny? I've actually not named it. No, he. I, I mean, officially from my end, he doesn't have a name. But what a terrible parent you are. I know. I know. I mean, hey, I want to get sniffed. I don't want any kids. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, 
<laughs> but it's true. It's true. The goblin, um, hey, he's he's open. He's open for naming. Anyone can name him if they if they'd like. But uh, but yeah, yeah, it, it's um. But yeah, to do a so Twitter that, poll. That creature that people see, yes, it, it is a sculpture, and it's actually a tiny sculpture at that. Um, so that was actually uh, a little bit of some practical effects um, mm-hmm. that we have in, in the documentary. But yeah, it doesn't doesn't have a name. Um, now you're making me think. I think he, I think his name I think his name should be Garbanzo. The good one, Garbanzo the Goblin. Yeah, the Garbanzo the Goblin. Garbanzo, it's true. Greg and I got on this big joke thread of how uh, Garbanzo sounds like a, a name. <laughs> yeah, there yeah. we go. Yeah. Make it official. It's, it should be Garbanzo the Goblin. Little, little record Garbanzo run, run around them caverns. Tyler's illegitimate child. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so yeah, there we go. I think I think that's good. Um, so yeah, I think I'm going to go ahead and I'll end the interview interview for the show. So thank you guys for coming on. It means a lot to me. I'm I'm so happy that Tyler downloaded Skype just to do this. That's how <laughs> special that's how special you are, Fred. Yeah, even if I had to <laughs> copy and paste a long string of numbers. Um <laughs> I should write those numbers down. They might be important later. That's true. And, Run uh, them through the site. Exactly yeah, exactly. yeah. I did that intentionally for, for those who follow the thread. Yeah, yeah, shut up. (laughs) And that is that. That's the interview. That's the episode. That's the season. I really, I cannot believe how fast season two went. Like, not in a bad way, but I don't know. I feel like I just started season two, like, not that long ago. And now here it is at the end. I'm going to take my extra week off in between seasons uh, like I did last time. We'll be back. I'll be back. January 11th, 2019, with episode 3.01, and some Bigfoot stories. So that's what we have to look forward to for the beginning of season three. I want to take a little bit here at the end of the season to really, really, really just thank everyone for the listens and the support and the continued growth of the show. The show is on track to get to 25,000 downloads probably before the end of the year, which is phenomenal. Like, almost there now. I think I've got, like, maybe 700, 800 left. And this one will probably push it over uh, pretty easily. But thank you so much. Uh, The show has only been around really for, like, nine months. And I cannot believe just where it's at right now, how quickly it kind of got here. I was not expecting that. But here it is. And we're going to go into Season 3 and just keep going. Like I said, I'm going to work on a Patreon. going to work on some new music. And some really fun, interesting topics coming up for Season 3. So thanks for listening. You you have, have 20 episodes that you can go back and binge listen to again if uh, the holidays are boring and you don't want to deal with the family or whatever. And you need to, you need to put some headphones on and just uh, shut out the world for a little bit. But, you know, thanks for supporting and please continue the support. There are so many ways that you can do it. You can visit sdscast.com. Uh, go to the merch tab and buy some merch. I think I'm going to uh, put everything on sale. I'm thinking maybe 20% off, 25% off, probably starting sometime tomorrow on Saturday on the, on the 21st and going until season three starts, so probably till the 10th of January. So that'll cover kind of like, oh, like an end of the season sale uh, slash holiday sale, if you will. I think I'm going to make the code season two. 
So you'll be able to go to the store, grab some stuff, type in season two, and get a discount until until we come back for season three. Uh, that's a way to support it. You can always also just make a PayPal donation, a one-time donation, if that's something you want to do. All of it helps out the show. All of it helps me uh, keep going. Got to have to buy a new hub. It'd be nice to <laughs> grab a new one of those sometime down the road. But if that is something that you can't do, just tell people about the show. Like I said, you can you can now go to that that person in the office that you know is in this stuff, but you haven't been able to talk to him about it yet and go, hey, I have this really great show that I listen to. There's now 20 episodes of it you can binge and uh, point them in the right direction. Tell a friend. Leave a review, please, or rate and review on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. It all helps the show. It all helps it float further and further to the top and get more and more exposure. Those are all great ways to support the show. If you have a small town secret to share, do you have a personal experience, a ghost story, a, a cryptid, a, a Bigfoot legend, a UFO sighting in your small town, a true crime thing? Uh, let me know about it and we will get it on the show and we'll share it. bunch of ways you can do it. Uh, go to sdscast.com again. Scroll down the bottom of that main page. There's an email form you can fill out. You can send it to me and we'll get it organized. We'll get it on here. You can get on me at social media. Most active on Twitter. That's at stscast. Facebook is also at stscast. And I'm on Instagram at stscast.com. Graham. There's also a subreddit, which is also linked down to the bottom. Everything's linked down to the bottom of the page, really. All the social media stuff, all the kind of, some of the podcatchers, all that great stuff. But the the um, subreddit is r slash STS listener stories, I believe. But it is down there. If Reddit is the thing you would like to use, and you can leave your story on there. Maybe even get some discussion from some other people in it. So if you have a story to share, we'll get it. We'll figure it out. But I think I'm going to head out of here. But have uh, everyone have happy holidays, happy new year, whatever you celebrate, however you celebrate. Uh, even if you celebrate what I like to call anti-Christmas, which is a holiday I made up one year where uh, I just stayed in, didn't answer the phone, ordered a, a greasy, greasy pizza, and watched uh, David Lynch and horror movies all day. Whatever it is, have fun, be safe, and I'll be back in a few weeks with season three uh, until then, remember that every town has a secret. What is yours?
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.